This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Maurice Samuels, the Betty Jane Anlian Professor of French and Director of the Yale Program for the Study of Antisemitism at Yale University. He's here to talk to us about his new book, The Right to Difference, French Universalism and the Jews, published in 2016 by the University of Chicago Press. Maurice, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you, Max. I'm happy to be here. Great. So first question, how did you come to write this book? Well, as you mentioned, I've been directing a program for the study of anti-Semitism at Yale since 2011. And as many of your viewers probably realize, France has been kind of the ground zero uh, for the recent anti-Semitic upsurge around the world. So we've had a lot of uh, talks about anti-Semitism. And over the years, I found myself kind of growing annoyed uh, at some of these talks, not so much by the talks themselves uh, as by the reaction in some of the audience members uh, who seem to think that France is an inherently anti-Semitic country. I heard that, you know, often, and, and it's an, a sentiment that I kind of found echoed also in, in news reports about events in France, especially in the U.S., and so, uh, you know, this is something, I mean, sh- to be sure, France has seen its share of anti-Semitism over the years. You know, there's Vichy and uh, the Dreyfus Affair before that. But France has also uh, been one of the countries that's been most open to Jews over the course of its history. I knew that from my prior research. It was the first country to grant Jews full civil rights, for example. So my original plan was to write a book about French philo-Semitism, about, about positive treatment of Jews in France. And I set off down that road I, for a couple years. I started uh, working on that. And then I came to realize that I actually wasn't that interested in philo-Semitism as a concept. And that a lot of the features of philo-Semitism or a lot of the kind of most uh, noticeable forms of philo-Semitism, like Protestant evangelical love of Jews, don't really apply to the French context. So I, I realized that book wasn't going to work. And I also realized that what I was really interested in was a specific kind of philo-Semitism, which is French universalism, which arguably isn't really a philo-Semitism at all, because it's based on the idea that all people should be treated equally. And But that struck me as something that needed more definition, uh, and it need, I, I was kind of fascinated by some of the paradoxes of French universalism. So I decided to make that the focus of the book. 
So uh, we're going to get into uh, the content of the book. So the the book's structured chronologically and starts with an examination of the French Revolution. Uh-huh. Tell us about your interpretation of debates around Jewish emancipation during this time. Yeah, well, so, you know, the book is really, the, the goal of the book is to show that um, French universalism, which most people interpret today uh, to mean that the state is hostile to minority difference, that the state, this is what kind of defines the uniqueness of the French case, according to most people, is that French universalism does not take minority difference into account, that the state doesn't recognize religious or ethnic difference. And what I try to show throughout the whole book, but especially in this chapter on the revolution, is that this has not always been the case, that French universalism actually has a complicated history and has meant different things to different people at different historical moments. So in that first chapter on the French Revolution, I look back to debates about giving citizenship to the Jews during the French Revolution, which was one of the first moments when French universalism, this idea that all people should be treated equally equally before the law, uh, was really worked out. So that's one of my arguments that I, I argue that French universalism really took shape during these debates about Jews during the French Revolution. And that in itself is a remarkable thing, because there were only about 30 to 40,000 Jews out of 25 million people in France at the time of the revolution. So it was this tiny community. But the French revolutionaries debated the question of giving citizenship to the Jews on something like 30 different occasions. So I look at, first of all, why that was, what Jews represented to the French, to French people or to the revolutionaries. And I argue that they were really a kind of test case for universalism. And I show that at that moment, yes, it's true that some people thought that Jews should deserve the Jews deserved rights only if they were willing to assimilate, which is to say to give up the specific features, cultural, religious, economic, uh, and political that define them as Jews. Um, so that was true that some people did argue for giving Jews citizenship on those terms, but other people, including many of the most uh, important orators during the French Revolution, actually had a different vision in mind and thought that the Jews deserved rights in spite of their difference. That as one of them, the most famous, uh, the Count Clermont Tonnerre said, what does it matter? What does Jewish difference matter for citizenship? And for him, it mattered not at all. Or even you could say that Jewish difference allowed the French revolutionaries to prove just how universal they could be. And in fact, at the end of the chapter, I showed that the, the terms of the decree granting Jews full civil rights made no mention of assimilation at all. Jews got civil rights only, the only thing they had to do was swear political allegiance to France and give up the features that made their communities different. So you then move on to the July monarchy and um, what you suggest were very public displays of Jewish identity. Tell, tell us about this. Yeah, well, so this is one of the most fascinating moments of this story for me, which is I decided to focus in the second chapter on the famous actress Rachel Félix of the Comédie Française, who was the most famous 
actress in France uh, and really in the world from the 1830s to the 1850s. She made her career interpreting the great tragic heroines of Corneille and Racine. Uh, and she did it while very publicly proclaiming her Jewishness. Uh, she, in fact, you know, well, whereas, you know, today we're kind of used to most actors changing their names to sound less Jewish. She actually changed her name to sound more Jewish. Uh, her real name was Elisa, and she took on the stage name Rachel, which was like the Jewish name. So she kind of really flaunted her Jewish identity. It was part of a kind of marketing strategy to stand out, uh, in the, in the July monarchy as a kind of exotic figure. And so in this chapter, what I look at is the, the public response to Rochelle. And of course, unsurprisingly, there were a lot of critics who thought, who were anti-Semitic and thought that a Jew like Rochelle could never interpret the great classics of the French tradition, Racine and Corneille, that they were foreign to her, that she could never speak those lines with authority. But what was more interesting to me was that there were other critics who thought that her Jewish identity gave her a special license to interpret those, uh, those parts, that there was something in her Jewishness that made her universal. So <clears throat> for me, that was a key moment in showing how French universalism could in fact be open to difference, that, that instead of needing to repress Jewish difference, the Jewish difference could be a kind of conduit to these universal values. And I think Rochelle, the actress, epitomized that. You suggest that um, French colonialism, particularly in Algeria, posed a dilemma for French universalism. Uh -huh. Tell us a bit about this. Well... That's an interesting moment, too. So France, France conquers Algeria in 1830, and there's a fairly large community of Jews in Algeria, uh, mainly in the cities where they make up a, a very large percentage of the population in the cities. And France faces the decision what to do both with that Jewish population and with the much larger Muslim population uh, in, in Algeria. Should they extend universalism to those people, which is to say, give them full civil rights uh, or not? And one of the main obstacles was that both Jews and Muslims in Algeria had their own, uh, followed their own religious laws, which conflicted with French civil law. Uh, one of the main examples of that is divorce. So Jews and Muslims granted divorce, whereas France didn't. Another one was polygamy. Uh, very relatively few Jews were still practicing polygamy at that point, but it was still technically uh, allowed by French, by Jewish law. So interestingly, what the French do is they decide not to extend universalism to the conquered population and to allow them to follow their own laws. Uh, so this doesn't sit well with the Jewish population back at home in metropolitan France. And they undertake over the next several decades this process of civilizing, quote unquote, the Jews of Algeria or regenerating them. So they kind of sub they force them to change their customs and laws to be more in line with French uh, values. And then in 1870, uh, a leader of the French Jewish community, Adolphe Crémieux, who's Minister of Justice, uh, passes the Crémieux Decree, which grants civil rights or citizenship to the Jews of Algeria 
but not to the Muslims. Uh, and this is a really important moment in, uh, you know, in this whole history. Um, and arguably, it kind of creates tensions between Jews and Muslims that are still playing out today. Um, so on the surface, what I look at in the chapter is how in the surface, it seems like this is an example of French universalism being predicated on assimilation, on the erasure of minority difference. So the Jews get citizenship because they become more like French people, whereas the Muslims don't. Um, but what I try to show to kind of complicate the picture is that, in fact, the model that French Jews were asked to assimilate to was not a kind of um, abstract Christian model, but really they were asked to become more like French Jews. So in a way, they weren't really losing their Jewish identity. They were just sort of changing it. And then also, paradoxically, it was by advocating on behalf of Algerian Jews that French Jews were asserting their Jewishness more forcefully in the public sphere. So in fact, this whole story of Algeria uh, doesn't really confirm the idea that French universalism uh, insists on assimilation, but in fact allowed for Jewish difference to be expressed in other ways. So in, in the next chapter, you look at uh, Emile Zola and his writings before, during and after the Dreyfus affair. Uh, tell us a bit about this. Yeah, well, you know, Emile Zola, if he's known to people at all, is known for his kind of heroic role during the Dreyfus affair as the great champion of Dreyfus and of the cause of truth and justice and of French universalism. Um, he was a, you know, an outspoken opponent of anti-Semitism, which was really growing during uh, the last decades of the 19th century. And he's rightfully, I think, known as a great hero because of his, his stance at this time. But if you look more closely at the things he wrote, it turns out that he defended the Jews, but also thought that they should completely assimilate to the point of disappearing as a distinct group altogether. Uh, and he says this in some of the articles he wrote during the Dreyfus Affair, where he says that really the solution to the Jewish problem is intermarriage. And French people will therefore take what's good about the Jews and then make the rest of it disappear into the much larger gene pool of the French population. And then in his last novel, Verité, Truth, which is based on the Dreyfus Affair, he kind of puts that into, shows how that would play out uh, through his fiction. And, and the, uh, the Jewish characters wind up intermarrying with the Christian characters and Jewishness kind of disappears in this utopian future. So what I try to show there is that he, in fact, defines the model of French universalism that we now take to be what universalism is, which is uh, a kind of hardline assimilationist idea that everyone should be equal, but everyone should be the same. And that it was really during the Dreyfus affair that that model uh, comes to the fore um, and becomes the dominant model. Um, and it's largely thanks to Zola. So in chapter five, you look at uh, Jean Renoir's Le Grand Illusion, mm -hmm. which you suggest offered a more open approach to minority difference. Uh, tell us about this. Yeah, well, that's sort of the inverse of the Zola chapter. So um, The Grand Illusion, which is one of my favorite movies, uh, it's a movie that, um, you know, I've seen hundreds of times. And I've always been struck by... Uh, 
what seems like an anti-Semitic representation of one of the central characters. So for listeners who aren't familiar with the movie, it's a movie set during World War I in a, in a series of German prisoner of war camps. And it's about a group of French prisoners who try to escape. And one of the prisoners is a Jew. His name is Rosenthal, Rosenthal. And he, over the course of the movie, comes to embody just about every anti-Semitic stereotype. Uh, so he's rich, he's a bragger, he's, you know, all kinds of things. Um, but uh, what I try to show in the chapter is that really what the movie is trying to show is that Rosenthal is accepted into this idealized community of prisoners, which represents France, in, not in spite of his difference, but along with his difference. So for me, the, and, and that it's in fact, that the movie needs to kind of show him embodying all these stereotypes to show how French universalism can include Jewish difference, even at its most different. Uh, so for me, the film winds up being a statement about this alternative model of French universalism that can be inclusive of difference. So you suggest that uh, Jean-Paul Sartre displayed a similar resistance to Zola's brand of universalism. Mm -hmm. uh, expand on this for us. Yeah, well, um, Sartre wrote one of the most famous books about anti-Semitism uh, after World War II. Um, in English, it's, it's translated as anti-Semite and Jew. And it's a harsh condemnation of um, the kind of entire personality profile of the anti-Semite very powerful book. What most people who talk about the book don't realize, though, is that he also includes in it an attack on, the, on Zola's brand of universalism in this kind of overlooked short second chapter of the book. Um, and what he says in, in that chapter is that um, Jews shouldn't hide their difference. They should be uh, upfront. They should assume their difference and that French people have to accept them on those terms. So this was a really important moment when it was really the first time that French universalism was critiqued from the left. Before that, it had been critiqued by right-wing people who thought that France shouldn't be universalist at all and, in fact, should keep out minorities like Jews. Here was someone, an intellectual on the left, saying that not only should those minorities be admitted and, and accepted, but they should be accepted in France on their own terms. They shouldn't be forced to change at all. Um, now, this story gets more complicated because in the last few pages of the book, Sartre, there's a little twist and Sartre says, yes, this is for now, but in the future, there's going to be a communist revolution at which point the Jews will gratefully assimilate because there won't be any anti-Semitism left uh, and they'll you know, have no reason to retain their Jewish identity. Um, so that's a little more problematic. But what I also try to show in the chapter is that Sartre's readers uh, through the decades kind of ignored that ending and took him on his, uh, what he said earlier in the book and used his book as a kind of um, platform 
in order to uh, justify their own increasingly uh, vocal expression of difference. And in fact, that model really uh, came to dominate the French cultural landscape in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, where this idea of the right to difference, which is uh, where I get the title of my book from, uh, really became a kind of buzzword in France, where minorities... Jews, but not only Jews, uh, Muslims too, other, other minority groups really proudly asserted their difference. And what I try to show is that Sartre offered the kind of intellectual justification for that. Your final chapter is on debates around the new anti-Semitism. Uh, tell us about this, um, then perhaps tell us a bit about some of your conclusions for the book as a whole. Yeah, well, you know, as people probably realize, there's been a big upsurge in anti-Semitism in France since uh, the start of the new millennium. It's um, very different from the old kind of anti-Semitism, which mostly came from the right. This anti-Semitism is mostly directed at Jews from um, kind of other disadvantaged groups, mostly Muslims, um, and uh, they're kind of apologists, on, let's say, on the left. Um, so in this chapter, what I look at is I look at two uh, contemporary French philosophers, Alain Finkelkraut, who's um, more on the right, or kind of center right, and then Alain Badiou, who's a kind of far leftist um, philosopher. And I look at how they have reacted to the new anti-Semitism by calling for a return to a hardline form of universalism, although in different ways. But both of them uh, kind of argue that the main threat to the French Republic is this idea of communitarism, which is translated maybe as communitarianism or identitarianism in English. This idea that minority communities band together uh, and uh, take their minority identity as more important than French national identity. So uh, in different ways, both of those philosophers, I think, um, are um, hostile to minority difference. And what I try to show in the chapter is that they miss... Uh, the long and complicated history of universalism uh, that I've tried to trace in the preceding chapters that in fact was much more open to minority difference. And that maybe by reclaiming that history, we can get around some of uh, the current dilemmas between minority communities, the, the tensions between minority communities in France. The book is The Right to Difference, French Universalism and the Jews, and uh, it's a very interesting book, uh, so I would certainly recommend it to readers. Um, but before we let you go, Maurice, um, would you be able to tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? Yeah, well, I've, I've uh, launched into a new book project uh, based on the first case of anti-Semitism in modern France. Uh, which is a, a kind of fascinating story uh, in 1832, where uh, the Duchesse de Berry was leading a civil war to reconquer France uh, for her son, who was the Bourbon heir to the throne. They had been displaced by the revolution of 1830, and she was trying to recapture the throne for her son. And she was betrayed to the government by her trusted confidant, who was a Jew. 
Uh, and not just any Jew. He was actually the son of the grand rabbi of France. And this led to a huge outpouring of anti-Semitism. And I'm trying to argue in the book that it kind of set the terms for subsequent, for the next hundred years of anti-Semitism in France. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like um, a great book project, and we certainly hope to have you back on New Books in Jewish Studies to talk about it um, when it's published. Well, that would be great. It was it was fun to talk to you. Fantastic. Um, so, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies with your host, Max Kaiser. Um, and with us today, we had Maurice Samuels, and he was talking to us about his new book, uh, The Right to Difference, French Universalism and the Jews, published in 2016 by the University of Chicago Press. Thanks for listening.